0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit enduringword.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me today for our Thursday afternoon question and answer live video here for our YouTube audience. Last week, I did it from the cab of a pickup truck. I was visiting somebody in Tennessee, and uh, it was great to be able to do it from there, but it's awfully nice to be back home in my home on the west coast of California and to be here with you all for one more normal, at least it feels that way to me, edition of our um, weekly question and answer time. The pattern that we follow for our weekly uh, question and answer time is that I begin with a lead question, and the lead question is something that comes in from people, uh, maybe social media, uh, maybe it comes in as a comment on the YouTube channel. Uh, This particular lead question comes to us today uh, from a question that we weren't able to get to from last week's live Q&A. We save the questions from the Q&A week to week, because if it's possible, certainly it's not always possible, but if it's possible, we like to go back and address the questions that we weren't able to get to. And so today, I'm going to consider a question from Emmanuel. Emmanuel writes his question. Wait, before I do that, let me just again say welcome to our TWR 360 audience. We're so pleased that you're here, so pleased that you could come and join us today. TWR 360, of course, is that great ministry, Trans World Radio, that for many decades and continuing reaches the world with the gospel and good Bible teaching by shortwave radio. But now, of course, they have a strong web presence as well. And their website is twr360.org, I believe that is. If not, you could just find it by uh, searching for that phrase, TWR 360. Welcome to our audience from that wonderful ministry. Now, Here's the question from Emmanuel. He says this, Hi, Pastor David. I am from Dallas. I wanted to ask exactly what was Jesus's ability to sin while he was on earth? And really, that's a very good question. What was the ability of Jesus to sin on this earth? He asks, could he literally not sin or um, did he have a sin nature or was he like Adam pre Now, again, Emmanuel, I want to thank you for that question. Sorry we couldn't get to it last week. Obviously, each week we usually can't get to each and every question that comes in on the live chat. We do, of course, try to get to as many as we can. But Emmanuel, your question is a great one because it has to do with, was it possible for Jesus to sin? What was the nature of temptation that Jesus faced? And so we want to talk about some of those things together. I I consider it this way, when we're thinking about this question, what we first have to think about is that there are two guardrails for us. You know, a guardrail is something on a road that keeps you from falling off the road either to the right or to the left. So what are the two guardrails regarding this? Well, the first guardrail is this, that Jesus was completely sinless. That is a biblical truth. Let me just go through some scriptures very quickly for you that talk about the sinlessness of Jesus. Chapter, 14, uh, chapter 4, verse 5 describes Jesus being yet without sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 describes Jesus as him who knew no sin. 1 Peter chapter, 20, verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 speaks of Jesus who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Those three passages speak very plainly, very straightforwardly about the fact that Jesus was sinless. But but let me just throw out a couple more to you, because again, I think this is a very important principle. Christians believe that there was a man who walked this earth who never sinned, never sinned in his words, never sinned in his thoughts, never sinned in his deeds in what he did. You have to admit that is a remarkable claim to make, but it's what we say as Christians. So let me give you a few other scripture references on that end. First um, John chapter 3 verse 5 says that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. First Peter chapter 1 verse 19 says that Jesus was without blemish and without spot. And then we read in John chapter 8 verse 46, Jesus said, this one to me is really remarkable. Jesus spoke to his enemies and accusers, and he said, which of you convicts me of sin? Can you imagine that? Standing in front of people who are your enemies, who are utterly committed to destroying you, and saying, hey, do you have anything sinful that you can accuse me of? It's a remarkable statement for Jesus to make. So that's our first guardrail, the guardrail that... Jesus was without sin. He never sinned in word, thought, or deed. But then there's another thing that we bring to the idea, the guardrail on the other side. It's the fact that Jesus was truly tempted. Jesus was truly tempted. Let me show you here from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We read there, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Now, we need to take care that we don't think that the temptation of Jesus was limited to 40 days. But what we have here recorded in the Gospels is this very specific period of time when Jesus was especially tempted. So 40 days does not limit the time of Jesus's temptation, but it does describe a particular, um, a particularly intense time of temptation. Here's another one. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You see what that tells us about Jesus? Jesus suffered and he suffered in temptation. Therefore, he's able to help us who are tempted. When you are tempted, you have a helper. You have somebody who can help you in the midst of your temptations. That's Jesus Christ, who himself suffered under temptation. Then let me just read you one more verse. And this perhaps is the best verse for us to talk about this from. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Isn't that marvelous? We have a high priest and he can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, this does not mean that Jesus was tempted in each and every way exactly, precisely that you and I are tempted. I'll give you an example. Today, you may be tempted to spend too much time on your smartphone and ignore God and the people and the things around you. That would be a sin. That would be a temptation. Again, I'm not trying to say that it's a sin to always use a smartphone. Not at all. Obviously, I have one. I just held mine up before you. But it is a sin to do it too much, to make an idol out of it. Well, Jesus never had the temptation of a smartphone. (laughs) They weren't invented yet, of course. But he did have temptations to idolatry. He did have temptations to putting things in wrong priority. He did have temptations to an out-of-balance Um, Pursuit of entertainment. So perhaps not in the specific, Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet certainly in general, in the broad categories, Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, so those are our two guardrails. Um, On the one side, Jesus was absolutely sinless. On the other side, Jesus was really, truly tempted. Now, let me completely wreck my guardrail metaphor and establish a third guard. I know, we'll make this the line down the center in the road. Very important, isn't it? The line down the center. So we have two guardrails and we have a line down the center of the road. Here's the line down the center of the road. That Jesus was and is God. And of course, that it is impossible for God to sin. Now, we understand that Jesus As he walked this earth, and as he is now um, dwelling in heaven, living in heaven, enthroned at the right hand of God the Father on high, Jesus was truly God and truly man. He had a true and real divine nature and a true and real human nature. He was one person with two natures. It's obvious. That Jesus in his deity could not sin, but at least theoretically, Jesus in his humanity could sin. How do those things reconcile? Friends, I don't know that we have a good answer to this from the Bible, because the Bible doesn't tell us with any great specific nature. The Bible does tell us that Jesus was and is really, truly God. The Bible does tell us that Jesus was and is really, truly man. He was one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. The temptations that Jesus dealt with were obviously connected to his humanity, not his deity. But we can't explain much more than that. Maybe we should go back to Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Again, let me show you that verse. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Truly tempted, yet truly without sin. Now I want you to consider something on this. We should never think that because Jesus is God he could never know temptation the way that we do now although i have to say in some part this is true because Jesus did face temptation much more severely than we ever have or we ever will friends The sinless one knows temptation in ways that we don't know. Because only the one who never gives in to temptation can truly know the full strength of temptation. Do you understand what I mean by that? There is a sense in which temptation comes to us, and it's kind of like water behind a dam, and it builds up and it builds up. And then, when we sadly sometimes give in to temptation, the pressure, so to speak, is released. For Jesus, the pressure was never released. Again, I'll say it only the one who never gives in to temptation can know the full strength of temptation. I can say this with confidence that in whatever ways you have been tempted, Jesus has been tempted to a far greater extent. Now, I like what Emmanuel from Dallas said in his question. He said this, it was good. He said, could Jesus literally not sin? Did he have a sin nature or was he like Adam before the fall? Now, in this sense, Jesus in his humanity, Emmanuel, you put your finger on it. He was like Adam before the fall. Jesus did not have a sin nature. That was part of the dynamic of the virgin birth, to produce a second Adam, someone who was truly and completely human, yet was not born with a sin nature. Therefore, Jesus had no sin nature inside of him that drew him to sin. So it's true that Jesus never faced temptation in an inner sense the way we do, because there was never within him a sinful nature pulling him to sin from the inside. But Jesus knew the strength and the fury, if I could use that term, of external temptation in a way and to a degree that we can never know. Jesus not only knows what we go through, he has faced far worse That's why it says in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. He can sympathize with our temptation. But there's a sense in which Jesus cannot sympathize with our sin because Jesus himself never sinned. Now, let me say, We should not think that this makes Jesus less sympathetic to us. We should never think that Jesus could understand us better if he had sinned himself. No, that's not the case. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said that sin is always of a hardening nature. A Jesus who had sinned would also be in some way harder towards us and more distant from his people. I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said, Jesus would have lost the perfection of his sympathetic nature if he himself had sinned. So, Emmanuel, thank you for your question. Jesus was like Adam before the fall in his sinless nature. And Jesus was truly tempted, yet without sin, yet we don't know exactly the nature of temptation of Jesus. We know some aspects of it, but we do know that he can identify with us in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our temptation. Thank you for your question, Emmanuel. I'm glad I could get to it this week, even if I couldn't get to it last week. All right, let me continue on now, take some... Uh, questions that have come in from the uh, live chat uh, from Devin, our moderator. And uh, first of all, here we come, a question from Jürgen. I'm Jürgen from Calvary Chapel, Herborn, Germany. Now, where will all the demons be? Where will be all the demons in the millennium? It says that Satan is bound for a thousand years, but where are all the demons? Well, Jürgen, that's a great question. Thank you for that. And God bless you to all my dear brothers and sisters at Calvary Chapel Herborn in Germany. Uh, it's wonderful to, to hear from you, and I'm happy to address this question. Okay, Jürgen, we are not told specifically where demons or unclean spirits are during that thousand years, but there's a couple things we have to go on the Bible does tell us plainly that it is within God's power to imprison or restrict demonic spirits. He does it with Satan. We're told very plainly in the book of Revelation that there's a period of time where Satan is bound for a thousand years. And we are also told in another place in Jude that God has imprisoned or restricted demonic spirits There's some controversy about the passage. I believe that it's demonic spirits that were connected back with the disaster in the days of Noah. But um, God has imprisoned or restricted those demonic spirits as well. So while we aren't told specifically what happens with these lesser demonic spirits, I think we can just take it on principle that because God imprisons their leader, Satan himself, putting him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, so, in some way, God also has and will, I should say, imprison those demonic spirits as well so that they cannot do their thing. By the way, for me, this is a, um, a powerful evidence, certainly not the only evidence, but it is a powerful evidence for the fact that we are not in the millennial reign of Jesus right now that the millennial reign of Jesus is not to be thought of as something, a purely figurative thing that we are in right now because we know that right now Satan is not imprisoned, that Peter tells us that he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, that the New Testament tells us that Satan is active and present now doing his dastardly work. So knowing that, we can say that um, demonic spirits are not bound in the present day, teaching us that we are not in the millennium or in some figurative form of the millennium right now. I do believe that there's a very real sense in which the kingdom of God is here right now. But as is often said, the kingdom of God is already and not yet. It's not fully realized at all, certainly not in the ways we've been talking about. So, Jürgen, I hope that's helpful for you. Blessings to you. Uh, Daniel asks a question here. He says, I, without doubt, believe in the Trinity, but was wondering, is this an essential belief for salvation, primarily in comparison with the modalist view of the Godhead? And if so, why? Okay, Daniel, let me answer this question, and I'll give you my perspective on it. This is a question that if you were to ask several different pastors or people who are interested in theology, you might get different answers, but you're asking me, so I'm going to give you my answer to this. First of all, it is not essential to have a finely tuned understanding of the theology of the Trinity in order to be saved. And I think we can praise the Lord for that. We are not saved by our theological precision of doctrines especially not doctrines that are more difficult to understand such as the Trinity. So is it possible for people to have things wrong about the Trinity and still be saved? Yes, it's possible, but and this this is a huge um, exception or, or addition that I need to, you have to take what I'm going to say next along with what I just said. Nobody can knowingly reject the truth of the Trinity and still be saved. And this is what I mean by that. When you knowingly reject the truth of who God is, as he is revealed in the Bible, you are rejecting the God of the Bible. You see, what we're talking about is not a contest for theological precision. What we're talking about is simply this. There is a God revealed to us in the scriptures. And if I knowingly reject the God that's presented to me from the scriptures, then I'm not saved. I'm not dealing with the God who actually is. And a make-believe pretend God can't save me doesn't exist. So do you see the distinction I'm making? It's not like getting to heaven is like passing a theology test and we have to get every answer correct or we have to get 90% of the answers correct. No, that's not it at all. But here's the matter. For someone to knowingly reject what the Bible says about that, that is grievous error and somebody's not going to make it to heaven that way. So we have to make a distinction between... Um, wrong theology that's just born out of ignorance, which God may choose to overlook in his mercy, and wrong theology that is chosen and embraced by a sinful heart. That is a different thing entirely. And look, let's be honest. It's not always possible for us from the outside to judge that with um, absolute precision and righteousness. Of course, God knows. If somebody believes wrong things about God, and by the way, if they reject the Trinity, they're believing wrong things about God. For someone to believe wrong things about God, God understands if they're doing that out of ignorance or if they're doing it out of rebellion and unbelief. God knows. And God does know and will judge righteously along those lines. So, back to what you say the modalist. The modalist is someone who believes that God does not exist and has never existed as one God in three persons. The modalist believes in a very mechanical way that God was once the Father, then became the Son and then became the Holy Spirit. And they don't believe it as a matter of emphasis or a matter of God's dealing with man. There's some leeway there for discussion about that. How God, at one phase, mostly dealt with man in the person or representation of the Father, then mostly dealt with man in the way of the Son, then mostly deals with man now in and through the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about matters of emphasis. They're talking about um manners, of modes. Here's the biblical truth. God is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. For someone to reject that with knowledge and say, no, there's one God and he was the Father, then became the Son, and is now with Holy Spirit, and never three in one, that's rejecting what the Bible says about God. And I fear for that person's soul. Look, ultimately, God alone knows, but we do fear for that person's soul, knowing that they are rejecting the biblical truth about God. Hope that's helpful for you there, Daniel. Let me go on next to a question about on, from Andrea. Andrea says, what can I do with some small value items I stole from some people before I had a relationship with the Lord? I can't find the people again. I can't return the items or apologize. Should I donate them? Andrew? I would say that in this particular case where we're not given clear biblical guidelines because restitution is a biblical guideline. And you know, as I'm thinking through this in my head, maybe we do have a guideline from the Old Testament because there were times in the Old Testament when The actual doing of the thing was either impossible or not desired by God. Here's an example. God said, um, separate all the firstborn of Israel to me. So all the firstborn of the flock, all the firstborn sheep, all the firstborn of the herd, all the firstborn calves and steer and such and the firstborn of your families, all the firstborn sons. Okay, so check this out. That would mean that when it came to sheep and cattle, God wanted you to actually sacrifice the firstborn unto him. But when it came to the firstborn sons, God didn't want human sacrifice. No, God established that way back in the days of Abraham. He did not want human sacrifice. So what did God do? He said, assign a monetary value to the son and God established what it was. I can't remember how many shekels or pieces of silver it was, but assign a monetary value to that son and then give that money to the tabernacle or the temple. You see, in lieu of, in replacement of, actually sacrificing or giving the thing, um, God said you can make a gift to the temple or the tabernacle. So, if the Holy Spirit should so lead you, Andrea, I think it is acceptable for you to take either the item or the monetary value of the item and donate it, because it would be impossible for you to make restitution as it is now, being so many years later and so many circumstances removed. So, Andrea, I hope that's helpful for you, the principle guiding you along the way. Uh, Jana asks... Do you consider yourself to be a cessationist or a continuationist? Okay, John, I will say, I consider myself to be a continuationist. I believe that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. I'm going to make one exception. There's one gift of the Holy Spirit that I do not believe is for today. And it's simply this, the gift of hearing God perfectly. I believe that that's the gift that God gave to those who wrote scripture. That that's the gift that God gave to his inspired apostles and prophets of the first century. God gave them a gift to hear him perfectly. I don't believe anybody has that gift today. That's why we have to be very humble about such things today and never put anything that comes from a person today even if it is by a gift of the Holy Spirit, on the same par as Scripture, which was given to us perfectly. But in general, apart from that exception, I would say, yes, I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. Now, I know this puts me at odds, at least on this particular point, with cessationist brothers and sisters who believe that the gifts of the Spirit, or at least some of the gifts of the Spirit, are no longer for today. What they commonly like to describe as the sign gifts or miraculous gifts. Let me just point something out very quickly. When you look at the New Testament, you never see the apostles, you never see the writers of Scripture putting gifts into different categories as if there is a divine... Categorization of gifts um, that, you know, make them completely unique. But that's another point altogether. My dear cessationist brothers and sisters do not believe that all the gifts of the Spirit are for today. There are sign gifts or miraculous gifts that are not for today. And though I disagree with them, and I would disagree with them very strongly and firmly on the point, I respect what I believe are their primary reasons for the rejection. Now, look, I can't speak to everybody's reason for being a cessationist, but as I read what the cessationists read, and as I listen to what they say, I see two dominant themes. Number one, they are greatly offended at all the foolishness and fakery that goes on in the name of the Holy Spirit among many of those who believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. And to that, I say, amen. There is a lot of foolishness and fakery out there, and I don't blame people for being offended at it. That's number one. I can respect that. Number two, I respect their zeal for... Um, Preserving the integrity and the sufficiency of the scriptures. I just simply don't believe that a belief in the present day gifts of the spirit contradicts that. And I could get into all the reasons why for that maybe another time. But I respect the impulse to say we must guard the sufficiency and the integrity of the scriptures. I feel the same way. I just don't express it in the same manner. So, Uh, You ask me very simply, I'll give you a very simple answer. Yes, I am a continuationist. I believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today, uh, but I do not consider myself, um, or let let me put this in another way. I respect the two main reasons that I perceive among my cessationist brothers and sisters for their rejection of the gifts of the Spirit today. Even though I don't agree with them, I understand them and I respect them. All right, let me continue on. Adonis asks a question, says, Revelation chapter 18, verse 23 says that the nations will be deceived by the sorcery of Babylon. How will this sorcery be manifested? As drugs? As magic? Here's Revelation chapter 18, verse 23 in the King James Version. It says this, And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in you and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more in, at all in you. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorceries were all the nations deceived. Listen, I, I think what's fascinating about this, uh, Adonis, is I would kind of make this a very broad category. The sorceries that Babylon uses to deceive people That's a broad category. Now, let me come back just for a moment to the idea of Babylon in the scriptures. You might guess, and properly so, that the most often mentioned city in the Bible is the city of Jerusalem. Absolutely so. There's no comparison. The most mentioned city in the Bible is the city of Jerusalem. Do you know what the second most mentioned city in the Bible is? You might have guessed it. It's Babylon. And Babylon was not only a literal city, which was the capital of a literal empire in the Bible, it also had a heavy symbolic or metaphorical meaning as well. And again, I think that the two stand by side, the literal and the symbolic are together. You don't have to choose between one or the other. Here's the thing. The metaphor or the symbol associated with Babylon is the world, the world system, the fact of humanity united together in its sin and rebellion against God. So in the book of Revelation, where it speaks of uh, Babylon in both a commercial sense And a religious sense, that's in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. It's really talking about worldly religion, worldly commerce and materialism, and everything that's involved with that. Those things set a spell over humanity in a broad sense. So Adonis, you simply ask, is this drugs? Is it magic? I would pretty much say all of the above. It's the sorcery, the spell that materialism puts upon people. You don't think greed and materialism puts a spell on people? Just look at people. Look at them with their possessions. Look at them with their lives. There is something of a spell or a, uh, uh, I don't know, a sorcery over people in their materialism, in their deception in all sorts of fields. So Adonis, I would just say that that concept there in Revelation chapter 18, verse 23, where it talks about the sorcery of Babylon, consider that in a very broad definition, not a narrow one. All right, let me continue on to a question from Victor. Victor asks, I understand that a believer cannot be possessed by Satan or demons, but what can we say about Judas Iscariot in Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Could Satan enter Judas because he was living in sin, or how do we explain it? Well, Victor, I'll just give you a very quick answer to that. And by the way, you're touching on a question that is important for Christians to consider. You see, I believe that when you take what the Bible says about demons and the demonic, there are certainly some things that demons cannot do against believers, they cannot control believers in the sense of demonic possession. However, there certainly are ways that demonic spirits can harass. Sometimes people use the term oppression and this and that. There are many and varied attacks that demonic spirits can make from the outside in upon believers and things that we commonly don't properly appreciate or take into consideration in whatever spiritual warfare that God gives us to do battle with. But your specific question, what about Judas? Victor, I would just explain it this way. Uh, Judas was not born again. Judas was not saved. Judas was an example of somebody who can appear to be a disciple of Jesus, but was never born again, was never truly a believer. He had an interest in Jesus, he had some sense of allegiance to Jesus, but he never had a saving trust. Jesus described Judas as the son of perdition, the son of destruction. He personifies what destruction and judgment are all about. No, he he was never saved to begin with. Um, Now, there's a lot more I could say. I could talk about when the disciples were specifically born again, and it's my contention that the disciples were not born again until after Judas actually died, Um, but at least the other disciples, the other 11 disciples, were true disciples of Jesus. Judas himself was a false disciple of Jesus, and let's face it, there are false disciples of Jesus to this day, are there not? Okay. That's from Victor. Thank you for that question, Victor. Let me go on to a question from Jimmy. Jimmy asks, from your series on the book of Acts, you said that there are chances Ananias might have made it to heaven. How could he be in heaven even though he sinned and never got any chance to repent? Oh, Jimmy. Brother, that's a great question, and I think I have an answer for you, so hold on with this. First of all, We should not think that if we have even one unrepented of sin and we die, then we're automatically going to hell. Friends, let's consider this. If you define sin in its broadest sense, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you define sin in its broadest sense, we sin all the time. And honestly, we don't have time in the day to specifically repent of every way that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I'm not trying to say that repentance is irrelevant for the believer, not at all. Whenever the Holy Spirit or this word of God itself or the Holy Spirit working through the word convicts us of sin, we must repent of that sin. I'm not trying to shortchange that at all. But if we define sin in its fullest sense as falling short of the glory of God, there's no way we can specifically repent of every occasion and every time that we do that. So, we should not think that if a person has one or five or ten unrepented of sins, specifically unrepented of, then that means, well, they're going to hell. It's important for us as believers to dwell to live, I should say, in a continual state of repentance. The continual state that declares, just as the psalmist did, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the kind of attitude that we need to live before the Lord with. Okay, so there's that. Now, The sin of Ananias in Acts chapter 5 and his wife Sapphira, that was no small sin. Then how could I excuse me? How could I say? How could I say either in my teaching or in my commentary? You can find my commentary throughout the whole Bible at enduringword.com. How could I say, in either my teaching or my commentary, that it's possible? That Ananias made it to heaven, even though he was struck dead by the Lord. Because later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about those who are being judged in the church at Corinth because they had so disgraced the Lord's supper. And I'm trying to take a look at this and seeing what the specific verse is that he says. He says, Okay, he's talking about those who have disgraced the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading at verse 30. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. In other words, the reason why some of the Corinthian believers were sick and had even died, that's what he means by sleep, is because they so disgraced the Lord by their disgraceful conduct at the Lord's Supper because apparently some believers had died because of this i would make an analogy between the corrective or judicial death of ananias and the corrective or judicial death of these corinthian believers now let me keep on reading here now i'm going to read to you verse 31 he says for if we would judge ourselves we would not be judged but when we are judged we are chastened by the lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. Notice, Paul assumes that those Corinthian believers who were judged in some sense with sickness and in at least in a few cases, death, it was so that they would not be judged with the world, not because they were going to hell. Maybe, and all I can say is maybe, Maybe that was the case with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. So, um, it does seem to be clearly the case here in 1 Corinthians 11. I'm just suggesting that maybe that was also the case in Acts chapter 5. Jimmy, I hope that makes sense to you. And again, I want to compliment you. That is a great question. Thank you for asking it. Let me go into to the next question from Aaron, who says, Regarding your... Um, Commentary in Daniel 1. Can you refute the five blunders you listed? I believe Daniel wrote this, uh, but those bring up questions. Well, um, I have to say, having not memorized, Aaron, uh, my commentary, let me uh, take a look here at my commentary on the book of Daniel. Um, Okay, I say here, that there are said to be five main historical blunders. This is what liberal, unbelieving critics, um, I'm not saying that it's only unbelieving critics that make these criticisms, but certainly unbelieving critics do make these criticisms. They claim that there's five historical blunders. First of all, they say that the date for Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of Judah is wrong. Secondly, they say that the use of the word Chaldeans to describe a class of soothsayers is wrong. There is the account of Nebuchadnezzar's madness. They say that's wrong. King Belshazzar and his relationship to Nabonidus, they say that's wrong. And the figure of Darius the Mede, they say that's wrong. Okay, all I can say about this, Aaron, is I can't get into answering that. I believe that I deal with that in the commentary later on as you make your way through Daniel chapter 1. So um, maybe if you make your way, if you read through the rest of my commentary through the successive chapters of Daniel, I think it would be just within the first six chapters of Daniel, and you don't find the answer to those blunders, let me know. And maybe we'll talk about it here on a Thursday. Thank you for that, Aaron. Let me go on to the next question from HC says, how can God save a non-believing coworker who wants to go to hell? Their actions and mindset is of this world. They claim they want to go to hell when asked. Okay, H.C., your question is, how can God save such a person? H.C., the only way God can save such a person is by changing their heart. Friends, if a person dies wanting to go to hell, they will go to hell it's that simple. God's not going to force people into heaven against their will. If somebody wants to go to hell, God will give them, so to speak, the privilege of going to hell. It's a terrible thought to consider, but it's true. If someone is determined to go to hell, God will, so to speak, allow it. So how does that happen? It happens when God changes hearts. And I don't know if I'm speaking to anybody who's in this situation right now, but let me say, there are many people who now love Jesus and long for heaven who at one time in their life, they would say, I was that one who wanted to go to hell. But God worked in their heart and changed their heart. So H.C., this is your part in this. You need to pray. You need to pray that God would change that person's heart. Now, I know sometimes these are hard, maybe even frustrating prayers to pray because we think something like this. How can I pray like this? Because um, if a person doesn't want their heart changed, it's not going to be changed. Listen, I'll tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that God holds the heart of a king in his hand and he can guide it wherever he wishes. If God can do that with a king, let me tell you, He can do it with anybody at any time. So rest in that assurance that God is able to change somebody's heart. And you, H.C., should be praying with this coworker who doesn't believe that God would change their heart from someone who says that they want to go to heaven and someone who wants to go to... Someone who says they want to go to hell into somebody who actually wants to go to heaven. And by the way, you, you would have to say this as well, H.C., that if somebody actually says that they want to go to hell, we can be confident of this. They don't understand what hell is at all. If anybody had a conception of hell that was true or accurate, they would never, ever, ever want to go there or be there. All right, let me go on to the next question. This question comes from Grant. Um why did the Lord make Goliath's death so brutal? You know, Grant, questions like this are ultimately unanswerable. Well, many of these questions are ultimately unanswerable. We can't say with confidence if the Bible doesn't tell us. But let me tell you something. It was important to show that Goliath was utterly defeated, that he didn't just have a headache from getting hit in the head with a stone, but that he was utterly defeated. And there's probably no better way to show that somebody is utterly and completely defeated than to cut their head off. There's no coming back from that. So I think it was to display to Israel, whose army was fearful and unbelieving, to Saul, who didn't want to step forth for the battle, to the Philistines themselves, that Goliath was truly dead and that there was no coming back for this champion of the Philistines. By the way, it shows us something very picturesque, doesn't it? If we want to make an illustration out of this and say that David represents Jesus Christ, the son of David then we can say that Jesus's defeat of sin was so complete that its head was cut off. And that's our salvation, is it not? So I hope that's helpful for you there, Grant. Lupe asks a question. If you don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, isn't that denying the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, Lupe, that's a very interesting question. And I would just put it to you this way. I don't believe that it's denying the gifts of the Holy Spirit, or at least that's not how the people who don't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit think of it themselves. Instead, in their mind, they believe that the gifts of the Spirit, or many of the gifts of the Spirit, are for today. They just simply um, don't have all the gifts of the Spirit for today. So I I have never heard somebody who is a cessationist, someone who believes that not all the gifts of the Spirit are for today, I've never heard one say, well, I just don't believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. No, they would never say that because they believe that the work of the Holy Spirit is around and active for today. However, uh, just not in the point that we would think about um, uh, that all the gifts of the Spirit are for today. All right, let me deal with one last question here from Golden Child. It says, can you explain to me what Leviticus 17.11 says in reference to Revelation 18.23? Okay, let me read this. The light of the lamp shall not shine in you anymore. Um, and the voice of the bridegroom, the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth and by your sorcery, the nations were deceived. All right. Lupe, I got to say, I'm not really catching this, what the connection is here to um, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. So let me take a look here. Leviticus chapter 17... For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Well, yes, Leviticus 17, 11 is simply describing the phenomenon that life is in the blood. Therefore, God gives it as a um, sacred thing. God says that we are not to eat blood in any sacrificial sense. God also says that uh, the life of the animal is represented by blood. That's why the outpouring of the blood of Jesus Christ is used as a figure of his own death, not a figure of his actual death there. So again, that's the Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 And Revelation chapter 18, verse 23, we've already talked about that in regard to Babylon. So I hope that's helpful for you there, golden child. All right. I am going to uh, wrap it up for the day. Again, you can look at my commentary, golden child, on Revelation chapter 17, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 17. I think that will be helpful for you at that particular passage. And uh, let me just again, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. It's been a wonderful time of having you join us on today's live question and answer. I hope that you can join us next Thursday when I'll be back here again, God willing, and if I live. And uh, may the Lord bless you. I pray God's blessing be on each and every one of you. It's been wonderful to have you a part of what we're doing today. God bless you. Uh, See you again next week. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.